0: This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure.
1: Love it. I think that's really important. And Very rarely do people say, well, you know, you're incompetent for doing that. When you, when you as a leader say, hey, I don't know, and let's talk about this, or, or, or you know, do you know anything about this? Then, then it actually makes you stronger. People respect that. When somebody um, asks questions, and then the other thing it does is you start talking about it maybe you realize that that person really doesn't want to take a degree of risk that you were thinking was appropriate for that day.
0: Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro, with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia.
2: And I'm Jordy Shepherd, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond.
0: At the heart of every adventure is a degree of risk-taking. Being able to communicate the level of risk that people can expect to be exposed to is an important component of delivering adventure to others recreationally and professionally. There is nothing worse than exposing someone to a situation that has an elevated level of risk or challenge and having them turn around and tell us that this is not what they expected. When this happens, the blame almost always lands on the leader. Another scenario that can cause damage to relationships and can derail a good adventure is when people feel like they are being forced or made to do something that they find difficult or dangerous. What can be worse is when a lack of communication around risk leads to physical injuries, and in some cases, inadequate risk communication can lead to legal actions such as lawsuits. On this last point, Waivers of liability are often thought of as an example of risk communication in a professional setting. While a waiver is not the only way we communicate risk to our clients and students, it is an essential part of the risk communication process. We aren't going to get into waivers much in this episode, but we will say that if waivers are vetted by an experienced lawyer and are properly worded and delivered, They have a history of standing up in court in most North American jurisdictions. We say this because we hear a lot of misinformation about waivers not being legally binding, and this is often not true. If you are delivering adventure professionally, this is something that you should familiarize yourself with. This is a topic for another episode. More common tools for communicating risk that we are going to explore include... Informing people of the risks and involving them in the decision making process. Doing this effectively can guide a leader's decision making, help people to prepare for what is to come, and share a level of responsibility with participants should things not go as planned. When people give informed consent to taking elevated risks, they are less likely to blame the leader, which can help to protect relationships both socially and and legally helping us to examine how we can communicate risk more effectively is friend
2: of the show will gad will is a world-class climbing paragliding and whitewater kayaking athlete in addition to undertaking many adventures around the world as a professional athlete will also guides others professionally and is a certified acmg alpine guide some of will's career highlights include establishing the hardest mixed ice climbing lines in the world Setting the world distance record for paragliding, twice. 423 kilometres, that's 263 miles, the second time. Kayaking down dozens of first ascents across North America. Winning the Canadian National Sport Climbing Championships, four times. Winning three gold medals at the X Games. Will has also been recognised as a mountain hero by the United Nations for his effort to raise awareness for environmental issues including how climate change is affecting the mountain environment. As always, at the end of the episode, we will summarize some of Will's key points, and we will have a few of our own add-ons.
0: All right. Welcome back, Will. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me back. We're, uh, we're getting to be regulars here.
0: Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, the, that's right. Yeah, friend of the show status. I think there's a fridge magnet in the in the mail for you or <laughs> something like that. That's That's awesome. So in our last uh, episode together, we talked about some of the key skills that we need if we want to be able to deliver adventure to ourselves and others effectively. How would you rate the ability to effectively communicate risk? And this is something you touched on a little bit.
1: It's really hard to communicate risk in a meaningful way. And I spoke at at a medical convention the other day, and we were talking about how they communicate risk for medical procedures. And the general consensus is it's really hard to actually communicate risk to people that aren't thinking about it in the same way all the time. And I think that's true in our world too. We can use statistics. We can say like 99% certain that this is all safe and good. Um, And we tend to think about those of us who want to be professionals, we want to use professional words and we want to use neat sounding boxes of, you know, our rate is this and, and things like that. But I think for me at this point, I'm trying to use more emotion in my communication of risk and relying, oddly enough, on something I wouldn't have done earlier, which is just reaching people in a way that resonates with them emotionally. And so I've written, you know, various pieces for magazines. You know, I have this document I send out to all my guests before I guide them, or do a paragliding clinic or whatever that says, Um, here's my experience with this. It's like the statistics are this, but that doesn't matter to the person that it goes bad for. Like it, I've I've been at this long enough that I have seen it go wrong. And so I try to communicate that in an emotional way that I hope resonates with people and they feel it because, you know, whether you're getting a surgery and it has a one in a thousand chance of going wrong, or you're going out for a day of backcountry, whatever, and it has a one in X thousand chance of going wrong. Everybody thinks it's not going to happen to me. But if you can make it real and say, Hey, I've been there. And we're going to try and stack the deck in our favor today and make good decisions and work together because it really sucks when this goes bad. And I think in our industry, we often try to sell how great it is. These life-changing experiences and, and, you know, you could, you could do this and it's going to be rad and it's, you're going to be, it's going to be so great. And we, we don't really mention that it's also, we're playing with a really heavy deck. And I think being, I don't think it's dishonesty. It's, it's almost a little bit more of like a, a private delusion or a public delusion that we have in selling this stuff. Yeah. We need to be more honest and, and express that communication often in emotional terms. Nobody ever reads the damn waiver, no matter how many times we tell them to. They just don't. And we get them to say that they did and everybody plays the game. But if we can communicate that, this actually really does involve poor outcomes um, some of the time and use that in an emotional way, then yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at it. I, I don't statistics and waivers. They're one thing, but actually really communicating that in, in a way that resonates and people remember it. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know where you at <laughs> You do the same thing. I'd be curious.
0: Well, I think you're, I think you're bang on in a lot of ways. It's that to add on, it's that ability to relate as well. So if you read a waiver there is a lot of information there about whatever the hazards are for that activity but what does that mean? So if you've never done that activity before or rarely then yeah. like what is that what does that mean? What are the chances? What what's the worst case scenario? How likely is it for that to happen today? And then and then well it's hard for me to even fathom that like to to picture that that mm-hmm. outcome. So um if you were talking about you know snowboarding you're learning to snowboard well today uh, first time uh, I have to tell you you're gonna you're gonna end up crashing quite a few times probably 10 20 30 times whatever depending on on how things go well what does that feel like if you're from Florida and you've never done that before it's really yeah. hard to imagine what falling on um, you know hardpack pack uh, snow is gonna feel like right they may have a, a, a this beautiful um, picture in their head of, of landing in a bunch of soft, fluffy snow, and this feels great. And, and you know what, unfortunately, at the resort it hasn't snowed for two weeks. And that's not what it's going to feel like it's it's going to hurt. So trying to communicate that to, to people, I think is, sometimes is is quite a challenge for, for us. So what role like you've touched on a few things, but what role does risk communication play in delivering adventure experiences to others? And what can happen if we don't do it well enough?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's a really important thing to do. Um, you you got to communicate the risk clearly. So one of the things I've done is work with. You can do that a few different ways. But people often say, "Well, driving to the trail, driving to the trailhead is the most dangerous part of my day," and you can actually there's some pretty good numbers out there, and, and you can challenge that assumption because it's not. It's it's anywhere from sort of you know four to ninety times more dangerous than. Um, are doing our activities is is anywhere between four and like ninety or orders of magnitude more dangerous than driving. Driving is actually really safe in modern vehicles. So I think it, good risk management has to start with a realistic grasp of what the actual hazards are, and those need to be communicated in some way that has emotional resonance to people. You know, the surgeons I mentioned earlier, they basically have come down to informed consent doesn't really exist. We can't. We have a very hard time communicating that, but they have to list the things and at least make people aware of them, even though they probably still can't make a really great decision. Um, they're hiring us to help with that decision, but we do need to actually list them and look them in the eye and, and have that be there and then have a realistic appreciation of what the, the real hazards are in the games that we play. Um, so yeah, and, if, and then again, unfortunately, we have to think, how is this going to look in a courtroom one day? And if you're like, hey, these are the hazards and we discussed this and we didn't just put them into the waiver. We actually had a discussion about it. Then um, it's a lot. It, gets, it goes back to decision making. Um, you can say, hey, we, we, we did our best to make a good decision and it did not unfortunately go well. Um, the outcome was not what we wanted to do, but we talked about it. We, we really got into it. And um, here's, here we are, unfortunately. So it, it's important. And it, it helps make people make decisions is we're not going to disneyland when we go out there in the mountains even even hiking it's like that is a larger the daily risk life we don't want to scare people but we do want them to understand that it matters you know and and uh our decisions have real consequences so we're we have to we have to communicate that in a way that resonates with people i think
0: No, for sure. I mean, you you hit on a a few different things. I mean, first of all, I find that when you involve people in that decision-making process by sharing those risks and trying to make them as informed as possible, then they have a stake in what's going to happen. And so if if you're up front and you're telling them, listen, this is what can happen. This is what I don't know. How do you feel about this? If something happens, then, then it goes back to your point of, well, you did tell me. And so you know what? I have to. I have to own a little bit of that. One of the things that that I mean, obviously, we we certainly worry about uh, something catastrophic happening, and um, certainly somebody worrying about somebody being in a position where they would want to to sue you and and that sort of thing. But more common, I think, is the situation where we have somebody in a situation where they turn around and say, this was harder than I thought or scarier than I thought or was riskier than I thought. And, and I think that's one of the key things that we want to, you know, want to try to avoid as, as outdoor leaders. Do you have an example of a situation where you were leading where risk communication played a significant role, like either in a, in a positive or a, or a negative way? I'll, I'll tell one about my kids. Because I, I think that, you know, that,
1: that will that will work well. Um, we, we were out um, backpacking and I said, I think I know where the trail goes. But I'm not really sure. I've never been here before. And I think it's over there. And we're going to have to, like, figure it out. And then we're beating around. We're trying to find this trail. And eventually we did find some sort of trail. But we're going across this hillside and it kind of sucked and I'm thinking in my head, oh, man, I've blown it, you know, with my kids. You know, like, I'm, they're, We're out here in this rocky junk heap of It's just a disaster. And and I turned around, and they looked remarkably happy. And I was like, I was thinking, what's going on? You know, they get into the snacks without me knowing what's happening here. And uh, they, they said, well, it's about like you said it might be. And we were good. Whereas if I'd said, yeah, the trail's over here, and we're good. So over and over again, if you communicate, and that's, that's that's a hazard, we're off trail, things are messier, but it's that communication about what might happen that, that does make a difference over and over and over again. And and you know, if I'm ice guiding and I say, hey, I'm willing to go out today, the high is minus 25, but we're only going to go 10 minutes from the car. And if you get cold feet, we got to go back to the car like right away or you're going to freeze them. And then that afternoon, their feet are frozen. And I've asked them six times if their feet are okay. And we've had a plan to deal with it. It's a lot easier to deal with that than if I hadn't done that work beforehand. And so, those are two that that communication of hazards both leads to more fun, because they're like, oh, yeah, our our communication of risks and knowledge leads to more fun because people are more comfortable. It's like my kids call that the sucky bit. But my guests (laughs) guests and I laugh about it too. It's like, we're going to have the sucky bit coming up here. It's going to suck. And that's part of the day. This is what we do out here. and then I've had other situations. If it was easy,
2: everybody would do it. Yeah. We're doing and you'd cool have again. tons of hordes of crowds with you, right? So there's a reason why yeah. you're out there without a whole ton of people with you.
1: Yeah. And often those sucky bits, the days that are most memorable with either guests or kids or partners, were like, oh man, that really sucked. We all are bashed for like three kilometers, but we got out there and then we got to that lake and it was so cool. But again, it's a perceptual thing. If you kind of warn people what's coming, then they do better and they're less afraid. They're like, wow, this isn't totally out of control. He said it's going to suck. It sucks. We're good here. Whereas if you're like, this sucks and he doesn't know what he's doing, then they might be questioning your leadership with some justification at that
2: point. <laughs> and another tool we can use is sharing what we use as tools yeah. in terms of our community, like uh, establishing what the risk is and the uncertainty that we are dealing with in that given day situation. And so we do have a thing called strategic mindset that we will often use in a lot, lots of the industries in the guiding world and instruction world. And so why don't we communicate that with the guests that just sets the stage because we know we've talked about, you know, if we're with a group or if I'm solo as an independent guide, I still go through that process mm-hmm. in my morning and after evening meetings. And so why don't we communicate that with our clients saying, look, we're, we're in assessment mode here. Like we don't know a lot about whatever it is, is—the snowpack or the ice conditions or, um, you know, the alpine conditions, or, you know, I'm in a, a place where I don't really know the weather patterns very well. Cause I'm, I'm new, you hired me to be with you in Italy and I, I don't know the weather patterns here. I don't even know where the weather comes from. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I'm in full on assessment mode here. And, you know, maybe if you've been here, maybe you could help because you, you can help, fill in some of those knowledge gaps that I have even as a client and involve them in it.
1: Love it. I think that's really important. And Very rarely do people say, well, you know, you're incompetent for doing that. When you, when you, as a leader say, Hey, I don't know, and let's talk about this or, 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 you know, do you know anything about this? Then, then it actually makes you stronger. People respect that when somebody um, asks questions. And then the other thing it does is you start talking about it. Maybe you realize that that person really doesn't want to take a degree of risk that you were thinking was appropriate for that day. Or they're like, they're keen for way more risk, and you're keeping them on the blue runs or on the green runs at the base of the mountain when they could actually handle quite a lot more and they'd be fired up on it. But if you don't engage in that conversation, like there's the warnings and stuff, but then it's a conversation that you go through, I think, you know, like your example in Italy, it's like, it's a conversation and that starts when you start sharing information and talking like a lot of professionals have resisted this idea of opening the the Camino, so to speak, and, and show the guts of what's going on. Um, We don't take that analogy too far, but uh, I I think the more we do that, the more it shows we have like justified confidence and competence and we're thinking about things and it it just leads to better decisions. So I'm all for it. I love it.
2: And then we can move forward with that and be uh, actually review at the end of the trip the day the the particular decision that we're talking about maybe it's like we just have to you know i'm i'm not very uh i'm in assessment mode here to and i'm i'm just learning the train to get up to that that part of the route and then i'm good and you're clear with yeah. that and then have that review period and it can be very brief even but saying how how did you feel that went you know to to your guests and clients and they're like yeah, that was pretty rocky. Yep. Yep. That yep. that you barely made it through there, but uh yeah. <laughs> and then 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 you then you know what their perspective was on it too and you you're actually yeah. getting that feedback rather than just saying, "Well, it worked and I communicated the risk and it all worked and we dodged the yeah. bullet whatever and it's fine." No, no, let's have a little just a little bit of a review about that after the fact. And that's where we
0: learn. Yeah.
1: You know, we we're driving out of the ghost. I was ice guiding a few days ago. We're driving out of the ghost and I'm asking my client, you know, great guy. It's like, how'd it go? And he, and, and, um, he brought up the fact that I didn't really know where I was going. And he, and uh, I was like, you're right. You know, there's this, there's been a fire since I was there last time. And I was totally making it up. And, and, and uh, he was like, he brought up the point that maybe I should have talked to him about that. And I, and I, I was like, you know, you're right. He's like, okay, we're good. But if I'd been like, well, it worked out, we're fine. Why do you ask any questions for it? I would have done two things. He wouldn't have brought it up in the future because I wouldn't listen to him. And also I wouldn't have learned anything from it. You know, I should have been asking more questions and informed him more about that. Um, and it didn't matter in the scheme of things, but to me, it was kind of a hole in the day. That was my that was my learning that I scroll down at night. It's like, yeah, I didn't do a good job on that one. I got to do a better job on that one. But if I, you know, you got to have that discussion that you're talking about to know that.
2: I was driving back with some clients after ski guiding last winter in the Rockies here, ski tour guiding, and I knew that it was, and I warned them, I was totally transparent, there's going to be some tight trees that we're going up through, which are not going to feel too tight as you're going up. But as we come back down, this is our first time backcountry mm-hmm. ski and, and splitboarding, and so I, they're, they're ski hill people and they'd hired me for this backcountry experience as an intro day and so i said but as we come out and then we're gonna have a, a beautiful day up and more in the alpine it's gonna feel open and and uh you know i think we should have some reasonable snow conditions and and then we have to come back down through the tight trees to get to the car that's just reality and so as we're coming back down well as, as we're driving back i say how how did it go for you because I heard you talking, two of the three of you talking as we are coming down through the tight trees, saying, "This is the worst day of my life."' <laughs> what one guy said <laughs> this is hor- horrible <laughs> they're, they're just yeah. having trouble with it, right And I know they're safe and and we're taking yeah. our time, but you know they're just not very familiar with these tight trees right in the snow and and I said, I just wanted to confirm like was this actually the worst day of your life?" and they're like oh no they're laughing about it and they're like no, no. Right. It, i just said that at the time right but it's nice to have that confirmation that i was not part of the worst day of their life they were they were just you know feeling a little bit uh, rowdy at that point and not not very confident
1: and that's going to be the story of the bar jordy took us through the tight trees and they're going to call you up in a year from now I'll be like we're ready for our ast1 or whatever let's, and,
2: let's do it again you know, we
1: Yeah, and you warned them about it. Like, hey, this is going to be the sucky bit on the way down. And they got there and it was the sucky bit. You know, maybe they had some fun with it by calling it. But I think that process is really, really important in being open about it. That's not all going to be happy, happy, happy. It's like we're going to have to deal with some things here. And and, uh,
0: I love it. Well, you mean you raise a great point about that unknown factor. And one of the factors that we don't know when we're leading others is how they will respond. We don't know when we put them in that difficult situation, how resilient they're going to be, how much energy they might have, how they're going to react. And you can end up being surprised. I had a, um, a lady, uh, one of my ski clients said to me one day, she says, I know you'll never take me on a run that I can't do. And I said, actually, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that for sure. I said, you could surprise me. Right? Yeah. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm pretty sure I can gauge what you can do, but you might surprise me. It could be more difficult uh, than I anticipated. The conditions could be um, different. I could just make a mistake. Like this, this could happen, mm-hmm. right? I know two colleagues who have uh, ski instructors who have taken people down double black runs on, on uh, Black Home. Well, actually, they didn't take them, they got them to the top. One went part way down and had to hike back out, um, which was on the couloir on home on So that would have been pretty tough. And another one had to hike up about, uh, f- well, probably f- almost half a kilometer and had to climb probably mm-hmm. 200 and some odd meters um, back because they got there and the person that they were with just couldn't do it. And in both circumstances, I'm sure that if you looked at it, they just ended up in a situation where the person surprised them. And mm-hmm. they were probably... Uh, in a situation where they're pushed to the limits and and that's often what we do ski instructors snowboard instructors bike mountain bike instructors when you're teaching these technical sports have a lot of risk you're trying to put people in positions where they wouldn't go necessarily on their own so that they can have that experience and and then sometimes it just doesn't work out and you end up having to um, do a lot of uh, a lot of reputation uh, repair and trying to massage it so that the experience ends up being um, seen as a, as a positive instead of a negative.
2: But that's where the other professionals come in that are in the ski hill environment, which are the ski patrol. And (laughs) they, they will, you call them right. And say, you know what, this is not going well with my guest here. They're, they're stuck or they're injured or they're scared and then they have all these tools, they have snowmobiles for rides, and they have rope rescue systems in steep yeah. terrain and all that kind of stuff, right, that, that's available to them. And so you, that's what they're paying for, is to have that coverage one way or another, if, if they actually do need assistance, and it's beyond your capability as, as their instructor or guide.
1: You know a correlation to this that I'm I I like that, and I wish I could call the ski patrol a lot when I'm out in the mountains. I would have called them regularly, um, personally or professionally. I like call a friend. I got to start working at ski areas. I love this. Um, One thing that's interesting that relates to this, and I think, as professionals and as as both as outdoor industry leaders and and individuals who do this stuff on our own, figuring out where people's limits are is really important and that continuing conversation helps when they shut up, then you know that there's an issue. If they're like the world's most verbal person and they're talking, you know, a mile a minute and all of a sudden they're not saying anything, then you you know you need to listen to those clues. But even going deeper than that, one of the ideas that I'm I'm working with a lot right now is is you can either find your limits in negative ways. So the idea of like know your limits as a leader or know your limits as a skier or a climber or whatever. This is like, a lot of people say, I know my limits and I stay within them. And you ask them, how do you know that? And most people don't have a clue. They have no idea. And so a lot of what I do with people is try to find their limits and whatever things that I'm you know, in, in, in but in a safe way. And the, the terminology that I use for this is you can either have negative limit setting, which usually results in a call to the ski patrol or to Jordy to show up with SAR, right? You don't actually know what your, your limits are and you find them in a negative way, or you can, you know, I very deliberately search for limits in a positive way, both with the people in my, in my care, and they're in my care when, when I'm doing what I'm doing, or on my own. So you, rather than taking them down A-line at Whistler, it's like, well, can they actually handle a bike in the air? And what does that look like in this relatively benign environment? And, I'll, and I don't really believe people a whole lot at this point. It's like, I, I want to actually see them execute these things and then find out what those limits are. Everybody who comes to me for ice climbing guiding says that they're, you know, I, I trust the, the woman who says, I've never ice climbed before and I'm from Atlanta. I'm like, we got a good baseline here. Well, well, I know where to go with this person. But if the person who says, yeah, I lead grade five and yeah, we want to go do X big route. I take them usually to the same place, which is a small crag. And I figure out what they can actually do and what their limits are. In a positive way, and that's become a much more conscious process. Is like I want positive limit seeking and testing, rather than negative um, limit seeking and testing, because that leads to, in Geordie's words, drama. And I don't like drama. I, I want to fi- figure those things out beforehand. And and so yeah, whatever whatever you're doing to figure out what those limits are, and you can use it in training too, a lot. You know, like can you cut a small slope that's the same aspect and see what happens? before you commit to something huge. You find out the limits of the situation in a positive way, whatever they are. So I'm, I'm consciously using that as a tool a lot more. I don't know if that resonates to you or makes sense, but
2: I'm, that's one that's working for me. Well, so much of it is is perception-based too, right? And so we have our perception, which is quite experienced generally, right? As guides, instructors, teachers. And then we have people who have a variety of you know, experiences and perceptions. And so it's trying to figure out what, what is actually perceived risk for them, where they're feeling like they're getting mm-hmm. pushed, and what is actual real risk mm-hmm. for them. And and when they get to the real risk point, we've, we have not done our yeah. job. And so if we can walk with somebody on a glacier that's snow covered and they can't see the crevasses and we feel confident we have ropes on and we have ability to rescue and we're probing and and we know where the zones of compression are and tension and you know we've been up there a lot trust it's not not very risky to them they're walking on snow that could fall away at any second under their feet and so that that is pushing them possibly to you know right to their limit and we know it's completely safe for them to be there if if even the worst thing happens they're still going to be fine we hope <laughs> and, yeah and that's that's a that's a that's you know which is yeah they they put a foot into a crevasse or or even fall into the crevasse we we feel pretty confident that we've got this um but they they are walking and i when i i remember back when i was first starting to do this stuff ski touring on glaciers and alpine climbing and walking across glaciers i didn't really know a lot of like and i had this fear and we've talked about fear um of falling into the glacier right and And I was with people who were more experienced and they, they weren't even, they didn't have a thought that Mm -hmm. it was a problem falling into a crevasse. And so now I fast forward to having all this experience and actually pulling people out of crevasses, unfortunately, sometimes not alive and sometimes alive, which is great. And, but I I have that perspective and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is benign terrain, but the perception of a lot of my clients would be that this is pretty badass terrain. And there's a lot of unknowns under my feet. And so you're delivering that adventure through your there's a big gap between the perceived and the real risk. And that's what you're talking about there, Will, is you're you're put you know you're pushing them and they're they're gonna they're gonna be fine with it and they'll do great with it and they're totally safe. And but they what they don't know is that you are choosing terrain and objectives that are quite reasonable for them and that you're not going to have to call out for.
1: Yeah. Well, and talking about that fear, like I would call that sort of stage one fear. That's the monster under the bed fear that you're going to fall into the crevasse everywhere on the glacier. And and personally, I actually tend to wear a rope a lot more on glaciers than I used to, because there are some holes out there that sneak up on me. I've had that happen. I'm like, I'm much more of a fan of a rope than what I was. I was like, this is bullshit. We're in the middle of a Valley. It's covered. We're good, you know, charge. And, and now I'm like, I've found holes in weird places. So I've, that fear is maybe a little more justified than I thought, but, but I would call that stage one fear where it isn't actually that hazardous. It's like that's the monster under the bed stage. Like you, you think it's there underneath the snow or whatever, and so that's kind of the stage one. And if you I, I, I actually really love that when people say, "Well, how do you know we're not going to just fall into the hole here?" And I'm like, "I don't know absolutely, but let's let's look at that, and talk about it, and, and bring people forward um, and, and why I'm not super concerned about while we're standing on this avalanche debris in the middle of the glacier or to the side of the glacier, I'm not super concerned. We're not going to take the rope off and go running around playing football just yet, but we're pretty good here. And here's why. And then that fear goes into like, they, they start to, to, to move away from just fear and, it, and then they can think and focus and engage. And so helping people with that fear, like, I, I really like that. I, I'm sure you do that. I know you do. You get out there, you're like, all right,
2: here's what's going on. Yeah, and, and being a good a good coach and helpful coach with with their perceived, you know it's not real, it's not actually a risky situation, but it's it's perceived for them and, and for them it's real. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the kid who's worried about the monster under the bed. I just saw a cartoon, it was great, and mom is is you know, reassuring the kid that's in the bed, like, yeah, yeah, you know, don't worry about it, right? And 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 the little kid is saying, Well, can I come sleep in your bed? And then the mother in the cartoon says, Well, I don't want you to come into my bed because the monster might follow follow you in into my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And you don't you don't want to be that kind of <laughs> like they're already right. on edge and and you don't want to be the well, yeah, there's there's some really bad stuff here. And you know, so you don't you don't want to if if you know it's safe for them, you don't want to ramp them up at all to them thinking that the worst is, is upon them and or could possibly be. So you gotta be reassuring and like you said, do that through like if you're on a glacier, let's use that, and there's there's snow there and you pull out as a professional a probe and you probe and you know you go down two two meters and you hit hard ice there, it's like, yeah, that we can actually check yeah. this out. Right. It's 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 not just unknowns that are, are beneath us. And we'll check periodically as we go, and we'll watch for these areas where we feel that the snowpack is more thin or weaker. And we're here in the morning, right, when it's more solid and in, in, on a spring day, and, and not when it's weak in the afternoon. And and you can you can give them all these things, and maybe it's just a few um, to think about that that really reassures them, but they still know that there's yeah, grasses and, there. Yeah. And that's where the adventure is.
1: Yes. And I I think what you just said is really really important is you engage with them and you engage with that fear. If you're just like, this is fine. I've been doing this for 30 years. We're good. That does very little. But if you're like, all right, here's what's, here's what's, first of all, that's a really legit fear. And I had it at one time too. And I'm still, we're going to keep the rope on because I could be wrong here, but here, here's some of the tools that I'm using. And again, it brings them into the process. And then they look at that. They look under the bed. And they, that that fear becomes um, it it gets it gets lowered to a more reasonable point where they're still concerned about crevasses because there are crevasses out there. We don't want to say it's totally safe because it's not, but we can say that um, in this situation, you know, one of the analogies I'll use is you know I would happily be here with my kids, but we would talk about it and and say what are the real hazards here and what are the perceived ones and and how are we going to work with that, but that. Yeah. I, I, again, it's that conversation and communication, and it's not just laying out the statistics of, you know, nobody's ever fallen into a hole in this glacier. It's like, well, there was that one guy, but you know, it's like, yeah, you got to make it like a believable thing to people, and, and and it's that discussion and conversation with people. So, love it. Yeah. Well, and the
2: other the other tool you talked about there, Will, is basically progression, yeah. right? And and Chris, you've talked about that too, where you're building people up to because maybe you you have no idea what they're capable of what their experience is and so you're you're moving through this progression with them and maybe maybe not that day or maybe that day you actually get them to the point where they they you realize they're terrified of crevasses and you actually are lowering them into a crevasse and they're climbing mm-hmm. out of it and they're they have they have tackled that fear and by the the end of the day or a, a week or a trip or a course or whatever they're they're feeling comfortable with these things that were this this big bad unknown for them and that's that's amazing to bring people to that level when it's when it's appropriate and that's done through progression and that's us as reading people where are they at right now and where they where do they want to be and where do i think i can take them and let's let's do it and it's it's that positive side of things the spin on it is i i can as, as long as i understand you and your situation I can take you places you never thought you possibly. See. Yeah.
1: And yeah. And, and then defining, yeah, the safety in that and the risk in that. And yeah, it's a, uh, this is what makes outdoor education so interesting. You know, I've literally been involved in it one way or the other now for most of my life as, as you know, that incident, I mentioned in the last show where I lost a kid at about mountain because he was annoying me and I, I was young. That's the way well, we found the kid. It was all good, but that, that self-knowledge and, you know, looking back on it, this is what's cool about being the, the educator in, the, in this space and whatever you're doing, as you, you learn and you, you get better at it. Or if you hopefully you get better at it and you get better at reading yourself and other people, I think it's fascinating.
0: So, Will, you, you touched on uh, quite a few things, uh, you know, understanding fear, understanding people's limits, and trying to assess that. Uh, and obviously communicating what the dangers and, and hazards are and the potential of, of something going on. If you were to quantify all of this into a process, like starting from the start of, of your experience when you're guiding and, and instructing people to the end, what does it look like as far as that risk communication goes? Like what kind of Like what kind of process do you use? What kind of information do you share? What kind of language do you use? How much information? Uh, do you usually share with people and sort of how does your timing work with when you're going to bring this, this stuff in and, and talk with them?
1: It depends a little bit on what um, sport or, or activity I'm involved with. But I think when I was younger, I sent them a lot of information about whatever we were doing. And now it, I, I, I try not to do any of that until I talk to them. Like the, I want to know more about them First. Like that's the first stage in even doing anything. Before I can tell them what the risks of something are, I have to know what actually makes sense for them and, and understand them and what what we might do together and why. People always send me an email for say guiding. It's like, I want to do these things and I have these missions and objectives. And I'm like, great. So what does that look like? What have you done? And and that's the first stage in, in making a good decision is to understand the person you're you're dealing with to some extent. And not just what they say, but how they say it. And, and you can figure out pretty quickly how their brains actually are working and what their knowledge is. And so rather than, rather than just starting it out, it's like figure out the person. And then that kind of determines whatever. That's the, that's the independent variable. Like what we do is dependent on that person, not the other way around. And again, it goes back to the idea of guiding people, not objectives. Like I guide people. I take people out in the mountains, whether it's paragliding kayaking, whatever you know, I I take people out and not, not just for objectives. So that's the first step is to understand that person. And then there's the information gathering. It's like, okay, I think this person can do this and I'm going to go and take them out in a benign environment and figure out what's actually makes sense, what their knowledge is, whether they can actually even assess risk in any way in these environments. Um, and then I try to and then it's, then it gets a little more organized a lot of that's pretty soft skills asking questions getting things back and then and then it becomes more organized if I'm you know maybe I've got a workflow where I'm if I'm going ice guiding it's like all right you know I actually have a pretty structured thing where what's the avalanche hazard and why and am I aware of it in that area have I been in there and I, I break it down more and more um but I guess there's one other component in that that's changed. I also send everybody that I that I guide or take into the mountains an article I wrote that lays out, hey, in an emotional way, searching for that emotional resonance with people. That um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm all right at this. I've done a lot of it, and and I've got a pretty good track record. But I have had it go wrong, and I and I really want people to get to buy into that and not see me as like the expert. I want them to see me as somebody with a lot of knowledge. We're going to go out there together. So it's interesting you asked that question because I think when I was younger, I was much more concerned with like A, B, C, D, I'm going to put this in my little book and I'm going to write it down and this is what it's going to be. And now I'm, before I start doing that, that's the part that really is important in a lot of ways to, to figure it out, figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and what our kind of philosophy of working together is. So I don't know if that answers your your question, but does that make
0: sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh
1: it's different than it used to be. I used to be like, "All right, here's the waiver, we're gone. and now it's like, "Hang on, like, what do you want? How does it work?" And then we'll, you know, is a waiver even appropriate for this person? Maybe they should actually not do this. <laughs> like, I have turned people down that I just don't think are a good fit, um, and and uh, and then and then it gets into then it does get much more structured at that point. Maybe that's where you're, the point where your question was at, but it's like, what what knowledge do I have? What knowledge don't I have? What do I need to get? Um, what's appropriate for this person, you know, and, and this might sound incredibly sexist or something, but I'm going to treat the risk assessment for a male or female person with two young kids very differently than a 22-year-old guy who is going to go light the world on fire with or without me. That's a very different set of risk assessments in, in my view. But again, it comes down to knowing them before I can do a good job for, about planning the day for, for both of us.
2: So let's uh Let's go into that a little further here. How does communicating risk to children differ from adults, or does it?
1: The basic assumption is that children can't that's why they're kids they 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 can't actually get to the informed consent that a surgeon or we as guys would use It's our job to keep them safe and I had a actually had a situation yesterday where I was guiding, and one of the people on the trip didn't show up, and the other person brought their twelve year old daughter um, this kid can't make Decisions and their parent that is with them may or may not be able to make good decisions for that kid that I'm about to take out there so I'm thinking about it. I'm like we're 15 or 20 minutes from the car. This is an okay place You know, I'd be all right with my kids there This is this is reasonable, but I'm gonna have to spend more of my brain power during the day monitoring this kid They're small. They're gonna get colder quicker They might not want to speak up because their feet are cold and I can't let their wrists their feet freeze change things dramatically and so the i tend to want to work with kids or people with very low knowledge and very low experience in much more controlled and much more known environments there's not going to be a lot of like as you were talking about earlier jordy with those. there's not going to be a lot of tight trees we're not going there like i don't know what they're going to do it's like yeah there is that bar has to be very very low um to to keep going so i don't know how you guys do it but that's it. my job is is to give them an experience but i'm not i don't want a lot of i want no drama in that situation and i'm going to set the bar there
2: yeah i feel for me with with kids involved uh that that the risk tolerance and and chance of something happened it really so you fast forward we've talked about things like court right you fast forward to court happening and you're dealing with adults versus children being involved. And it's, it's going to be exponentially worse for you as, as the guide instructor. um, When, when it's, there's children involved, you know, everything from how you feel is, is, you know, it, it, maybe it wouldn't be too much different with, you know, an adult gets hurt or a child gets hurt. Um, You're just going to feel badly that it happened, but how it's going to play out and how everything from the media and how uh, their parents are going to react to that being a problem and that you led them to all of that is, is going to be horrendous. And so you, you really, you know, you're not saying that it won't happen at all. You know, the kid could, you know, maybe get a little bit injured, you know, twist an ankle with wearing a crampon or something for the first time and, or break an ankle, but you know, you just can't have kids getting seriously hurt. And expect there to be society to to protect you, and and think that that's okay. It's just not cool. And then you step into what what we call you step into what we call custodial groups. So minors, youth that are not in the care of their parents, that's a that's a whole another game, right? It's it it changes things significantly because now the parents are not there to actively know parent their children and be part of the decision making and that's a whole another scene like taking out school groups or you know scout groups and that kind of stuff Uh, yeah it's a you you really need to be in pretty benign terrain but still still giving a good experience
1: it's tricky too because i don't think there's much recognition of um much recognition or, or tolerance, especially in our North American culture, with with poor outcomes as being acceptable, and I, I've really seen this in a lot of areas lately. From you know all kinds of different things, you know. It's but there, there's this idea that we're in control of our destinies in an absolute way, and so if something bad happens, it must have been because of these horrible decisions that were made by the people involved, and sometimes there is. Great negligence, and this does happen. Let's not pretend it doesn't. It does, but most of the time, it's good people working with the best of intentions, and they're not, you know, whether it's a recreational or professional accident incident. It's they're not idiots. They went out the door that morning with the idea they're going to have a great day, and they things didn't go their way. But there's no tolerance for that, or very little tolerance for that. So you you find yourself in court going. So in hindsight was that a good move or or not? And it's a, it's been, it's been a tricky one. I think that decision-making process that we started this conversation with a little while ago and the documentation and the discussion and the recognition is, uh, I think it's very, very
2: important. So do you have any other advice or examples you want to share with the listeners on how they can become better at communicating risks when they're in this leadership role? So many, I
1: mean, that's just such a huge topic. I, I think the first thing is to move away from statistics or if there are statistics, have the real statistics. You know, I've heard this even from guides. It's like most being just part of our day is driving to the trailhead. Well, no, it's not. It's like if you have that information, you can dispel that. And then also making it emotional and being like, yeah, this is what we're going to do here is, is stack the deck in our favor um, to have good outcomes. And we're going to do that in the following ways together um, and reduce your expert halo, do all these things and just involve people emotionally, look them in the eye and like, be like, yeah, we're going to do something really cool today. And here's how we're going to go about doing it safely. This, these are some of the issues that, that I, that I can see happening. I don't think they're going to happen, but these are actually real issues. Like people have died on this glacier that we're on. And, you know, I think you might be a little bit more on the, um, like for me, I say things like that and I'm like, I just think that's that's, that's how it works. And that's the environment we're going into. And I want to bring you back and I want to come back. And, and you say that with some emotion and some intensity and people are all of a sudden like, wow, this guy's really thinking about things. And then that leads to better outcomes, I think, because they trust you, but they also know some of your limitations and, uh, and, and want to be engaged And that conversation is important. So yeah, I think make it emotional, make it real, make it personal and not just numbers and not just the waiver and then engage people throughout the day. I I did have several events where things did not go my my way with either um, a paragliding event or a kayaking event or an alpine climbing event. But before that, I've been like, hey, I think this is reasonable. Here's the problems that we may face. Um, I'm up for going in here and doing this, but this is a real hazard. What do you guys think? And when that real hazard materialized and I had some injuries, they were like, Well, you, you you talk to us about this. And it made that outcome a lot more palatable. Whereas if I just said, We're good, conditions are good, follow me. You know, <laughs> I don't think it would have worked out as well. Uh, yeah. And then let's not forget what we do is really cool. Sorry, but what we do is really cool. We get to take people to basic places and give them experiences of a lifetime. That's what our that's a big part of it too. So just just you know, let's not freak them out, but let's be realistic and, and keep the fire there for people. Cause that's, what's cool.
2: Excellent. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Will again. And, uh, yeah, you don't need to start a podcast cause we'll just make you a regular on the show.
1: <laughs> well, it's, I really enjoyed talking with you. You obviously think deeply about it, whether it's, you know, how to give people better experiences at, at Whistler and, and give them the best possible outcomes or ski touring and journey. And I've enjoyed learning from you. You've been one of my mentors and I've learned a lot from you and, uh, I think about
0: your words regularly out there at the mountains. So yeah, it's great. All right. Thanks for this, Will. If you would like to learn more about Will's work as a United Nations mountain hero, join him on a guided trip, hire him to be your instructor, or have him speak at your event, you can reach him through his website, willgad.com. We will post this link as well as links to his TEDx talk and a few other videos in the show notes. Well, Jordy, what came to you as you listened to Will? Chris, Will's interview was excellent,
2: as always, and it's great to have him back on the show. He spurred a number of thoughts about communicating risk. So one thing that uh, came up was the role of risk communication. We need to inform everyone of what to expect so that people know what can happen how likely it is and how risks will be managed and how they can provide the leader with informed consent. So that brings us to getting informed consent. So getting informed consent involves communicating the risks that will be faced in a way that people can understand and process accurately. Only when people have an understanding of what can happen to them, can they give informed consent to undertake that activity. This is a really important concept in outdoor activities. The challenge with getting informed consent is that in some circumstances, it can be difficult and even impossible to inform people effectively. For example, in most situations, children cannot give you informed consent. Another example is when people have impairments such as head injuries, cognitive disabilities, or they've been drinking. Their ability to give informed consent also goes down. Another example is when people don't speak the same language and may not understand what you or a waiver are trying to tell them. The other challenge can be when people have no experience with a situation at all and cannot really form an informed understanding of what the consequences or the probability of encountering a negative outcome would look like. When people cannot give informed consent, a leader is wise to reduce the level of risk they are
0: exposing people to. Great points, Jordy. I'll add a few more. When it comes to communicating risk, we want to do it at the start, the end, and during our activity. Before undertaking an activity, it's a good idea to outline what the expected hazards are, the possible consequences, and the probability of experiencing those consequences. It's also a good idea to use this discussion to highlight how you are going to be managing those risks and what your emergency plan might look like. During an activity, you should be informing people anytime you are going to be taking on an increased level of risk, or you're about to do something that is completely new to them. Examples of these include a ski instructor who's going to expose their students to an area with more skier traffic, a climbing guide who is about to enter a different kind of terrain that their clients have never encountered before, or a mountain biking instructor Who is about to descend a more technical trail? It's also a good idea to check in with people during the day to see if their risk tolerance has changed. This can happen for a variety of reasons. In some cases, people may feel more open to taking increased risk because their skills or confidence has increased. On the other hand, people may feel like they want to take on less risk because the conditions or weather has changed they have become fatigued and have less energy, or they've discovered that they weren't as good at the activity as they thought they were. A close call, like a fall or crash, can also change someone's perception of how much risk they are willing to expose themselves to. At the end of an activity, it's always good practice to debrief the day by asking how people felt and addressing any concerns that the leader may have had about how things went. The memories that we have are the stories that we tell ourselves and others. Addressing any issues around taking on too much risk or being exposed to too much adversity gives a leader an opportunity to address concerns. This can create an opportunity to reshape a person's memories by providing additional context. This context can include discussing how much danger a person was actually in, what actual steps were taken to manage the risk that the person may not have realized, and to provide empathy where it's appropriate. It's also important sometimes to remind people about what they have actually accomplished, and in some cases, to acknowledge that what they have done was risky or difficult, and that's part of the adventure. Of course, debriefing is also an opportunity for a leader to reflect on what they could do differently to get an even better outcome if they were to do that again. Learning from our experiences is how we become better. This is something that Will has touched on multiple times now. The last point, Jordy, is that involving people in the decision-making process is an important step, as Will touched on. Anytime there's going to be an elevated level of risk or there's a new situation that people have not encountered, the leader should probably consider involving their group in the decision-making process.
2: Our many thanks again to Will for being on the show. He always offers a valuable perspective. If you haven't already done so, We encourage you to check out his other episodes. As always, we remind you to make sure you follow the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your social network. We have posted an easily shareable link into the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.